This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am still Kevin Randall. I have not changed my name and I have not gone anywhere. Before I bring on my guest, David Muller, I wanted to um, mention a couple of things. Back in the olden days, which is mid-1990s now, I had a radio show on KTSM Radio in El Paso. I had trouble getting guests from the skeptical side of the fence on the program. I don't know why. I always tried to be fair with the guests, no matter who they were or what side of the fence they were on. The only person I had any success with was Philip Class, and that's because I knew him personally. He and I had been sailing on the Potomac River at one point, uh, as just an example. He would come on, and I mentioned this problem to him, and he said, well, I'll contact my friends at Prometheus Books, and we'll see if we can get you some guests, and it never happened. So the only skeptic I ever had on the program was Philip Class, and we had uh, lots and lots of different guests on the program, including psychics and everything else you could think of. In today's world, I'm now at the other side of the fence. I have trouble finding guests on the believer side of the, of the aisle. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because they're afraid of answering tough questions. If they're, some of them I believe are charlatans. And I, I guess they're afraid that we're going to be, they're going to be attacked on the air. They understand what the purpose of the program, which is to examine the UFO phenomenon. Anyway, I can get skeptics on the program now, and I have some trouble with the people on the other side of the fence. And some of them, I really don't blame them for not wanting to come on the program. Secondly, and kind of related to this, just uh, last week, a fellow wrote to or contacted Mark Rodiker, who's the scientific director at the Center for UFO Studies, and wanted to get copies of the um, audio tapes the transcripts and other materials we had associated with General Exxon's testimony. And Mark Rodiker said, uh, basically said no. And I think it's because the QFOS records are not in a central location anymore. And David can speak to that a little bit later about that. But uh, he said no, but he sent me a copy of the um, email. So I wrote to the guy and I said, you know, come on the program. And he said, no, he didn't want to do that. But since he couldn't get the information from Kufos he wanted, he was going to suggest that the uh, Exxon material was unsubstantiated. Well, I kind of laughed at that because I have a letter from General Exxon actually confirming the accuracy of the quotes that we made from, from those tapes. I have the tapes. I have the transcripts. I have all that material. I asked him twice why he didn't contact either Don Schmidt or me about this, but he just never responded to that question. But I alerted him that that material had been substantiated by General Exxon himself and by a fellow named Greg Sandow, who had uh, looked at the uh, criticism uh, leveled by Cal Korf on our reporting of the um, Exxon materials. Uh, 
Sandow would be a disinterested third party. And for those of you who do not understand, a judge in a trial is disinterested, but he's not uninterested. So when I say disinterested, I mean Glenn, or Greg Sandow has no dog in the fight. He's looking for the truth. And he's got a long analysis to some of that corf material and how it went off the rails. So what we have now to substantiate the General Exxon testimony is not only a letter from General Exxon saying the quotes are accurate, but we have a disinterested third party who's looked at the material as well and suggested the same thing. I put a thing up on my blog about this just uh, yesterday or the day before so that uh, we can see that, including the letter from Exxon, which has been available through the internet for uh, two, two decades, I think. Uh, when I got I got the letter in 1991, and it's been published and it's been seen around, so the guy didn't do his due diligence to look for that that material. Anyway, that's enough of this. I am going to now bring on David Mahler. He has a lifelong interest in the subject of UFOs. He joined the Mutual UFO Network in 1990 as a field investigator trainee. Since then, he has served as a field investigator, state section director, as well as the Illinois state director. He is currently an independent UFO researcher. During his tenure with MUFON, he uh, conducted numerous investigations into alleged UFO sightings and related experiences. He has discussed the subject of UFOs on numerous radio and television news programs, and he has lectured on the subject to various school and adult audiences over the years. He has an extreme uh, personal library, extensive personal library of UFO books, journals, magazines, newspapers, and case files from around the world that covers the last 70 years. With this, he's been examining the detailed history of the UFO sighting reports and related patterns. He strives to have an open mind, and I hope we all do, regarding the UFO phenomenon. However, he is also acknowledges that the, there is a need for the skeptical approach when examining each U, uh, UFO report. That was kind of why I was talking about getting skeptics on the program, to, to get that other side of the coin. Despite a large percentage of misidentifications and hoaxes in the UFO data, David recognizes what appears to be a core phenomenon beneath it all. He has received a Bachelor of Science degree in Psychology from Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. He received a certification in hypnotherapy from uh, Moton and Johnson Institute of Hypnosis in St. Louis, Missouri. And David Mahler, wake, welcome, <laughs> welcome, welcome to a different perspective. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here and discussing our favorite subject again. <laughs> I don't know if it's my favorite subject, but it's in the top <laughs> two, <you know? laughs> something like that. Uh, I know that you're involved in a large project, project scanning documentation, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But I also know that you have an interest in triangular UFO sightings, which I think have exploded in the last few years. Uh, give me a little bit of uh, the history of the triangular shaped UFOs. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, as you noted in my bio, I, I really got actively involved in the UFO subject back in 1990. And if you recall, going back to that time, in addition to Roswell, uh, Gulf Breeze was a very popular subject, but also equally so was the Belgian wave of UFO sightings that occurred from November of 1989 to about spring of 1991, really. And I was really captivated by the triangular UFO subset in the data for a number of reasons. One, obviously there were numerous witnesses, a lot of military uh, involved in Belgium with that, uh, radar tracking, uh, radar visual are always one of my favorites as far as the bar of credibility when it comes to UFO cases. Um, the fact that the Belgian Air Force acknowledged that there was something in their airspace that they couldn't identify. So I was really interested and that was a hot topic at the time. And then fast forward 10 years later, 
in Southern Illinois, where I lived at the time, we had that famous St. Clair County UFO incident where multiple police officers described uh, a large triangular UFO. And I was really struck with the fact, Kevin, that as I was in the police stations interviewing these various police officers, I could almost anticipate what they were going to sketch. I was I could almost anticipate how they were going to describe how the object flew, mainly because it echoed what the gendarmes 10 years previously in Belgium described. And I found the parallels between these two cases significant. I then took the next step, as any researcher would do, if there's parallels between these two cases, are there other historical cases on record that parallel these descriptions and flight characteristics? And to my surprise, as I continue to dig deeper and deeper, and as I continue to acquire a larger historical library on the subject, I was finding report after report after report. In the last year, uh, I've gone through the NICAP KUFOS files that are sitting next to me here, and I looked from 1950 to 1977, and I've been able to basically call out of those files over 102 additional historical triangular UFO reports, which is interesting. When uh, when I was on the History Channel a couple of years ago on Unidentified, uh, David Clark, UK UFO researcher and folklorist, made the comment that, well, these triangles really didn't appear until 1977. And then he equated that with the fact that Star Wars came out at that time. And he thought that Star Wars influenced popular culture into making these people think that they were seeing triangular UFOs. And he cited the triangular Star Destroyers from the movie Star Wars. Um, I put this lecture together that I'm going to be presenting this year with the express purpose to demonstrate that there are historical cases that predate Star Wars describing triangles going back to the 1950s, if not earlier, in the historical records, contemporaneous reports that parallel what people are reporting today. Well, if I remember correctly, in the 1960s, there were a few UFO magazines, and one of them published a chart of UFO shapes. And this is 1960s. And on that, one of the things that was there was a triangular-shaped UFO, which just kind of negates that whole premise. It, it does. And Kevin, one of the things I was struck with was going through the historic flying saucer review issues that I have here. And there were actually two articles written, I believe, in 57 and then a follow-up article in 1958 by a researcher by the last name of Watson. And there were two articles specifically devoted to triangular UFOs, which obviously, if he's citing cases, that means they predate 5758. What's interesting about that is in this article, in these two articles, they describe many of these triangles flying with the flat side as the leading edge and the apex of the triangle trailing behind, which is completely counterintuitive when we think about aerodynamics and aerodynamic principles. But again, what's interesting about that is modern day accounts and ones that I've just in the last year found in the NICAP files describe that same unusual flight characteristic. And so when you start to see patterns in the data, it's certainly not conclusive, but as I like to say, it's suggestive that there may be a reality behind these reports, given the fact, especially in the 1950s, 60s, and even early 70s, when that wasn't really the hot topic. Most people at that time were describing flying saucers, 30-foot silver discs with little cupolas on top. Uh, but despite that prevalence of reports of flying saucers or flying discs, there seems to be a small undercurrent of triangular UFOs that have been reported worldwide.
Well, we're going to get back to that in just a moment. I'm going to have to take a short break. I'm here with David Mahler. We're talking about triangular-shaped UFOs. And I have a couple of questions. Take a look at um, the files that you've been uh, scanning for research purposes and that sort of thing. Once again, if you're interested in the general Exxon information, it is now published on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And we will be back right after this. So please stick around. I am joined by David Mahler. We're talking about triangular-shaped UFOs. And when we went away, he suggested that they were flying with the flat end forward. I've been looking at the reports of triangular-shaped UFOs in the last year, year and a half, and I know that there's been explosions of them, which is suggested yeah. with some kind of terrestrially-based te technology coming into the forefront. But I don't remember them talking that much about the flat side being the leading edge of the UFO, but I, I really haven't looked at that stuff. That was something that's kind of caught me off guard. Have you looked at modern cases that have the same sort of dynamic? Absolutely, Kevin. And, and you bring up an excellent point, which sometimes I, I overlook, and I, I would like to just seize upon that just for a moment. To your point, there seems to have been this explosion of triangular UFO reports in the last, say, 10, 15, 20 years. And I concede that within the mix of quote unquote triangular UFO reports, some of these could be next generation stealth aircraft. Um, but that's why I like to go back and look at the historical record though, because again, at a time when flying saucer reports were prevalent, we still had reports of these triangles. And I think as we go further back in time, having these reports of these large triangular uh, aeroforms, platforms, if you will, uh, the further we go back in time, the harder it is to attribute a military explanation uh, in many of these cases, especially with some of the radical flight characteristics, the ability for these things to hover and then make a flat pivot turn without banking like a conventional aircraft. A lot of these things are in the reports, very detailed reports uh, in some cases. Uh, and then we have, of course, the size. Uh, we have the rapid acceleration with the absence of a sonic boom which is very unusual and intriguing. Um, and then we also have uh, a number of military reports on file. Uh, one of the strangest is uh, from Project Blue Book Files, Albany, Georgia, 1953. A uh, pilot was on a solo flight and he noticed this extremely sharp circular light in the sky. And in the Blue Book report, he states that it didn't seem to be a star or planet because it didn't scintillate. It had a very sharply defined uh, edge, if you will, circular edge. And he continued to look at the light. And after a while, he decided, I'll increase altitude. If this is a star or planet, it's not going to change perspective very much or, or at all. And he said, if it's something in the atmosphere, then perhaps it will change perspective. He increased altitude in the Blue Book report. And then within a matter of a few minutes, he realized that the light that was above him was now below his aircraft. So this eliminated Venus or any type of uh, you know celestial explanation. Uh, he then closed on the object to try to get a better look. And the Blue Book report goes on to state that the white light was alternating white, orange, white, orange, and it was cycling like that on a regular basis. Then as he approached the light, the light transformed into a red triangle, which within a second after witnessing that, 
the triangle separated into two triangles, one slightly above the other, both glowing red, and then they disappeared. What's interesting about this, as I alluded to during the first segment of, of the show, is the fact that in the Blue Book report, the Albany, Georgia airport had a primary radar target at the exact same location as this UFO. It's one of those that just has a, a number of unusual elements uh, where, you know, looking back to 1953, if we had that technology, I'd be very surprised. Absolutely. One of the questions that springs to my mind is when you talk about the flat uh, edge being the leading edge, and we now see the triangular shaped objects with the apex as the leading edge, wouldn't that be a discriminating factor suggesting more terrestrially based um, phenomenon or, or, or aircraft because it be becomes aerodynamic that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the, the flat side is the leading edge is one of those unusual characteristics that I try to differentiate to your point. What could be terrestrial versus maybe someone else's technology? Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> I'm not going to say extraterrestrial. Um, but I look for those exotic flight characteristics. And what's interesting, uh, Kevin, is with these historic reports, not only do we have the written testimony, but one of the things that I've been working on are digitizing hundreds of these audio recordings. These came from Richard Hall uh, that eventually went to my friend Rod Dyke up in Seattle. And Rod's been sending me these recordings. These were part of the original NICAP case file collection. But when Richard Hall passed away, the audio recordings were separated from the case files. I'm happy to say through the generous donation of Rod Dyke, we now have these audio recordings of witness testimony that we're now reuniting with the written case files. And in one particular case, the reason I mention that is there's a case from Pennsylvania from 1964, where I not only have a triangle report showing the flat side as the leading edge, I also incorporated uh, a digitized and digitally remastered audio recording of an interview with the witness describing that flight characteristic. Well, let's jump into that since you've kind of brought it up here inadvertently. Um, I spoke to Chris uh, Zahn just a couple of weeks ago talking about his project to collect an awful lot of the UFO material from researchers around the world and get it digitized and in a, a centralized location, a library. And he mentioned that the work you were doing there in Texas to do the same thing. Now, you have copies of an awful lot of files from, from NICAP and CUFOS and uh, that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Uh, well, it was actually election day back in November of uh, 2020 uh, that everyone al already was in a heightened state of anxiety with the election, awaiting the, the election results for the, the presidency. I was also anxious, but for a different reason. I had a, a U-Haul truck that was going to be arriving that day, and they delivered 15 four and five drawer file cabinets chock full of these historic case files, uh, including NICAP, KUFOS, and also CSI New York. Not the TV show for any any modern uh, viewers, but uh, uh, Civilian Saucer Intelligence was one of those early pioneering UFO groups that did wonderful work. Uh, the work of Ted Blocher, uh, Lex Mebin, and Isabel Davis. They, they did some really incredible work in the early years of ufology in cataloging and collecting some of these case files. But I was able to receive that collection. But in addition to that, I already had a growing collection uh, over the course of the last 20 to 25 years and uh, some rare collections, including personal correspondence of people like Dr. Leon Davidson. Ostensibly, his collection resides at Columbia University in New York. 
but I was put in touch with a self-proclaimed dumpster diver in New York, and he was salvaging all this material that was being thrown away by the family. And it had early correspondence between people like Kenneth Arnold, uh, you know, Jim Mosley, uh, Gray Barker, and many, many other individuals in the early years of ufology between Leon Davidson and these individuals. And so that's just one of the many collections. Lou Farish, uh, who passed away a number of years back, was a personal friend. I acquired his historic collection. So as I like to say, they say the Bible is a collection of books in a book. This is a collection of collections. Uh, you know, a lot of people have spent their entire life gathering this material. And my ultimate goal, Kevin, uh, to your question, is for the physical files and materials that are around me to go to the University of New Mexico here in Albuquerque. Um, and they have graciously uh, accepted this. I've signed a deed of gift. So when I pass on, all of this material will go to the university and be maintained for perpetuity for future generations of historians and UFO researchers. But in the short term, the goal is with the, the efforts of Barry Greenwood and Jan Aldridge, who have been really doing the lion's share of digitization work, taking all this material, digitizing it, and working with KUFOS to eventually have a central location online where it will be a digital archive where researchers worldwide, for no charge, I might add, can access this, this material. I know a lot of people want to monetize the information. Uh, I believe the information belongs to everyone. And the more sets of eyes and the more brains that we have looking at the data, I think that's the only way we're going to have any semblance of answers or you know trends that could lead to answers to the phenomenon. Well, you did say something that was kind of um, scary, and that was a dumpster diver finding documents being thrown out by family that uh, yes. are relevant to this. Uh, and I hesitate to bring up the name Todd Zeckel, Mm -hmm. But apparently he was doing dumpster diving as NICAP was collapsing yeah. and collected an awful lot of files that had been thrown away by NICAP. And I don't know what happened to that material. Yeah. The, the other thing is, I don't suppose you have any access to the APRO files as well. I know the family has hung on to them, but I think they're basically rotting away in a storage facility. I don't think anybody's looked at them in literally years. No, you're absolutely right. And really, that's the holy grail, Kevin. That's that I would love to be able to access the historic APRO files because uh, APRO, as you know, was in existence even before NICAP. And so some of the early American ufology, not just American, as you know, they had foreign correspondence, especially in South America, uh, a number, Dr. Alavo Fontes being one that was feeding them a lot of foreign uh, UFO cases and UFO reports. Uh, it's it's hopeful. I, I try to be an optimist, but I'm more of a pragmatist, Kevin. I, I'm hopeful that one day we'll be able to have access to the APRO files. Um, but to your point, the last information we have, the last intel, is that they do reside in Arizona and they're in a stor storage locker somewhere. And attempts to access them uh, have not been uh, successful or fruitful. Uh, in absence of the APRO files, as I like to point out, this is the largest historic case file collection in the United States. MUFON uh, ostensibly has a, a huge archive of case files, but admittedly, they didn't come into the fray until 1969. With NICAP and CSI, we have these UFO case files dating back to the early mid-1950s moving forward. And so as a, as a uh, single repository of UFO case files, it, it is the largest single case file collection 
that would only be eclipsed possibly by the APRO files. But until we have access, until we can see those files, uh, it's just kind of a wild card at this point. Well, I do know that the APRO bulletin has been online for a while or available on while I've, yes. online for a while. I've got a, 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 a collection of those as well. And you can find an awful lot of material in that. And I, I of course, was friends with Coral and Jim Lorenzen for a long mm -hmm. time and did investigations for APRO at their behest and that sort of thing. So I have access to some of that, but I'm sure you've got all the APRO bulletins and I don't have anything beyond that as well, but it at least gives us a clue as to what they had and what they were doing. And I find as I write books about UFOs, I use that as a resource, an important resource to look at that. The Leveland case, or more importantly, the Jim Stokes case, James Stokes case from Oregon, Oro Grande, New Mexico, mm -hmm. being his car being stalled along the shaped craft uh, flying around overhead, a number of other cars being being with him. And I've just uh, been working on some stuff for uh, uh, article for the MUFON journal that deals with that sort of thing. Do you come up with much of this? Like, I guess we could point to the electromagnetic effects. You come up with much in the way of that. And I noticed by the clock here, I'm going to have to take a break. So we're going to have to come back to that after the, sure. after the break. But take a look at uh, the electromagnetic effects, because I think that's an important subset of the UFO phenomenon. I think the Leveland case is actually probably one of the most important cases in ufology. So we will be back right after this with David Muller talking about UFOs and collections of material and all that sort of thing. So please stick around. And... We are back. As you can see, we are practicing social distancing. I always mention that because I'm here and David Mahler is somewhere else. Uh, when we went away, I had brought up the topic of uh, electromagnetic effects, especially around Roswell, New Mexico. And it kind of uh, comes from uh, some of the work APRO had done around Alamogordo, New Mexico at that same time frame with uh, James Stokes and some of the other witnesses. In your work here, have you run into much in the way of uh, electromagnetic cases? Going through the historic case files, Kevin, yes. Uh, admittedly, relative to the actual sighting reports themselves, it's a small percentage. It's a small subset within the data. But to your point, I alluded to radar visual being one of those benchmarks that I think is a little bit more credible as opposed to just a, an eyewitness report of a UFO. Equally so, I would say, are the electromagnetic cases. And, uh, you know, you, you just wrote the book on Leveland. And uh, I have to tell you, as a kid, I had an interest. Uh, I wasn't active until 1990, but I've always had an interest in the UFO subject. And I remember hearing about Leveland. In fact, I believe it was referenced at the beginning of uh, the documentary from 1978, UFOs It Has Begun, where they talk about the vehicle interference that was associated with the Leveland sightings. Um, and James Stokes, um, I, I've always felt like he was summarily dismissed by the Air Force. Um, if I remember, and you could correct me on this, Kevin, it was mainly because they said they couldn't find any other motorists that were with him at that time, which admittedly, if, if you didn't exchange information, how are you going to track these people down? But uh, that whole area, uh, to your point, and of course, with Jim and Coral Lorenzen being right there in the Alamogordo, El Paso, White Sands area, they were able to document quite a bit of that. Um, and as you mentioned, the APRO bulletins contain a lot of great information, but I'm sure you've ran into this as well, where you read an account in the APRO bulletin, but you want another layer of detail and you'd love to be able to go back and have the recourse to go back to the original case files, which 
as as we were discussing on the previous segment, they're not accessible at this time, unfortunately. I, but I wish we could have our, our hands on that information because I'd love to see what they have. And one other thing I wanted to mention that I thought of during the break, we talk about these file sets as though they're separate and distinct. Uh, I'm very happy to say that in going through uh, my review from roughly 1950 to 1977, looking for triangle reports, there are a number of copies of APRO files from that same time period. As you know, Kevin, a lot of the UFO groups and investigators would cross-pollinate the case files and data. So I have copies of MUFON reports going back to 1969, 1970, but also I have APRO uh, files, case files that uh, are in the data here, uh, admittedly a small percentage, but it's nice to see that copies were made of those files. And in some cases, we do have access to some of those APRO reports. Well, I would say that one of the problems with uh, Stokes wasn't necessarily they couldn't find any of the other witnesses. Mm -hmm. the, he talked about um, two witnesses he had names or partial names from, and one of the guys had supposedly taken pictures and was on his way to El Paso and was going to stop at the newspapers to uh, have the pictures developed or show them the pictures or whatever. And that never surfaced. Mm -hmm. And that's always kind of a worrisome problem with that. Right. But on the other side of that, go back and you look at the Air Force reports from 19, from, from that time frame when they were investigating Stokes and that sort of thing, they did their level best to smear him. Yeah. And I say that because um, it was reported that he was an engineer working at Holloman Air Force Base. And the Air Force came out and said, well, no, he's not an engineer. He was a technician. And then we had his boss at Hulliman Air Force Base, Major uh, Everett. Can't remember his first name off the top of my head. Everett, who said, well, no, no, he's an engineer. He's been working as an engineer in this field. Right. Um, and so you had the Air Force arguing about the credentials of this guy. Um, they also uh, were making other other comments, dismissing it was a publicity sound. The first thing he did after he saw the UFO was go to the radio station. And that's not true. The first thing he did was go to his boss mm -hmm. and ask him if he could talk about this. And his boss, Everett, said, did it happen on duty? And he said, no. And he said, did it happen on Holloman Air Force Base? And he said, no. And he said, well, go ahead and talk. Right. So he called his friend, Jim Lorenzen. <laughs> and Jim Lorenzen called Terry Clark, who was the news director at, um, was it K? ALG, Alamogordo radio, radio station, and went over and talked to him about that. Uh, and, the, and the interesting thing is when Lorenzen saw him and Clark saw him, Stokes that is, mm -hmm. he had a sunburn on part of his face and his arm. And I've always thought this is kind of the inspiration for the richest Richard Dreyfus character in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Absolutely. By the time the Air Force showed up, the, the burn had faded because right. it wasn't very, very distinct burn. But they made a great deal how he talked about he'd been severely burned. And I could see nothing in the documentation I had where Stokes had mentioned a severe burn, but I saw it appearing in newspaper articles right. as if the reporters added that little note of uh, that little detail, I suppose I should say. But uh, that was the thing that I, I took away from that. And it's I think it's an important thing that we all look at to smear the people who were reporting the UFOs at the time. And I think if these other guys who were there, the other people who were there along the road, and I think Stokes talked seven or eight cars, maybe as many, many as 10 other cars stalled by the side of the road. If they saw how the Air Force was treating Stokes, I think that would inhibit them from coming forward. And I think that's an important point we all have to re realize as well. 
Well, and it's interesting too, Kevin, from that time period, looking at Stokes, but also the military patrols at White Sands that had sightings around that same time within that basically a 24 to 36 hour period, I believe, from Leveland to Stokes to the military patrols that had observed the UFO. Uh, Wendy Connors, going through some of her historic audio recordings, um, she was uh, had a recording from that time period, a news broadcast, radio news broadcast, I'm sure you've heard it where the public information officer at White Sands is acknowledging that military patrol saw this object that looked like it was from another world that landed and then took off. And so on one hand, you have them smearing Stokes, but on the other hand, you have the public information officer acknowledging that military patrols had seen a UFO. So sometimes, quite often we see in these instances, there's a disconnect. It's, it's on one hand, we're talking about it, but on the other hand, we're trying to dismiss it. Well, I think if you take a look back, you'll find that the Air Force actually smeared the guys at White Sands as well. <laughs> uh, uh, you go back and they say, well, they were very young guys, uh, 18 to 20 years old. It turns out they were, I think, 19 to 21, which is not right. a big difference, but it's right. more accurate information. Right. And that they were poorly trained and they were caught up in the hysteria of the time. And if, <laughs> I, if I've explained many, many times now to many, many people, uh, this wasn't a time of social media. So the guys at uh, White Sands were not aware of what was going on in Leveland at the time, so they couldn't be caught up in the hysteria. And the Air Force said, well, they saw the moon. And if you take a look at the report, and actually I talked to Glenn Toy, and he told me that the thing came down and nearly landed about 50 yards in front of him. So it's, it's uh, silhouetted against the mountains in the background. So clearly the moon has now landed on the planet Earth. But I mean, that's the whole thing. The only difference I see is they didn't work very hard to smear the people in Leveland, other than I think manipulated the sheriff, um, Weir Clem, a name I absolutely hate, into <laughs> suggesting he'd just seen some, a streak of light in the distance. And we have documentation from before the Air Force investigation to afterwards where he was talking about a bright red glowing um, football shaped or oval shaped object. Yeah. And it's it's so funny uh, as we look at these historic cases. And I know you know this all too well, Kevin, I'm preaching to the choir. You think we have all this information. And then uh, I found that uh, local TV news segment with Weir Klim that I sent you a while back. And hopefully you enjoyed. Oh, yes. I don't think I asked if you had seen that one before. No, I had not. I was uh, delighted to see it and, and get a better impression from it. I mean, you hear a name like Weir Clem and he's a, a sheriff in West Texas in some little rinky-dink town in Hockley County, and you're thinking of some kind of rube. Right. And then you get him on the program and you see that he's really articulate and not the dummy you would think he was. Exactly. And, and, and it's, just, it's great when you can find those little elements of history where you think we have it all. And then out of left field, you find another little fragment that you can pull into the fray. Well, I think the newspaper morgues are, are important, the newspaper files. And that's one of the things that I discovered in Leveland is that um, when Clem went out looking for the UFO, uh, he was in what I call a small convoy, a mini convoy. He was riding with a deputy. Behind him was a car from the Texas Department of State, Texas State Department of Safety, Texas Department of Public Safety. I'll get it right sometime today. And uh, behind him was a car with Air Force officers in it. And then the next day, uh, the sheriff takes his car to the police mechanic to have it checked out. And the only reason I can think of him doing it is they got. And he wanted to see if there was some mechanical problem with the car. And yet we got documentation. The Air Force files and nothing I can find beyond that 
mentioned the Air Force officers being with the sheriff when his car stalled. Right. Yeah. And, and if I remember, Kevin, the Air Force explanations for the car stalling is that people were just shocked at, at seeing something and their, their foot came off the clutch or the gas pedal. Isn't does that is that if my memory serves? They had um, a couple of explanations. Pedro Sacido, who was the first person to call into the Hockley County Sheriff, uh, they said his car had been repaired the day before and there was a piece of metal in the distributor that caused the uh, caused it to short out, and that's why his car stalled. But it doesn't explain why, when the UFO left, he could start his car again. Exactly. <laughs> and and then they only talked about uh, three people seeing the object, and and I think Heineck made the comment. Well, then you could have a coincidence of two cars stalling in the in the bad weather, but when you move much beyond that, then you've you you're out of that realm. And I think uh, if you go through the Air Force file carefully, and that's another another point. Uh, I found references to like 13 different people at 13 separate locations. And the sheriff said that he'd gotten, I say dozens of calls. I think he actually says hundreds of calls about this thing going on in that short period of time in, uh, in level land, the air force eventually wrote it off as ball lightning. Uh, and that's still the explanation. And I've mentioned that before that it simply can't be ball lightning because it's very short lived. And I think science still argues about the reality of ball lightning. So. Absolutely. I think the jury's still out. But that, that's one thing about important about level land is the number of witnesses and the interaction with the environment. And then there's a story that Don Berlinson found in interviewing the family of the sheriff that uh, they'd actually found a burned area where the thing landed. Uh, North talked to the uh, widow of the rancher whose property it was on and uh, the daughter. And the daughter said, yes, I went out there with my father and we saw this burned area. So I think that's all very important stuff to remember about Level Land. We're going to have to take another short break here. I see by the old clock on the wall. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of UFOs and the project to copy all the material. So please stick around. And we are back. I probably should mention that if you go to XZ bn.net you'll find a listing of other programs available on the xzone broadcast network and i'm sure that you'll find some things that will be of interest to you there i know my show should be extremely interesting to you and of course we always have rod mcconnell's shows featured there as well so you can listen to rod mcconnell talk about that sort of thing uh when we went away we were i guess with level land and you've looked at some of those files and you sent me the 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 uh news clip of uh, the sheriff talking about his experiences it was kind of exciting to see that that sort of thing uh, at that from that from that time frame uh, what other gems have you found in these collections that uh, kind of surprised you well one that surprised me uh, and I think we may have talked about this on a previous uh, show Kevin I was working with Barry Greenwood and Jan Aldridge. I had him on speakerphone and Barry was looking for a report uh, going back to the Yukon territory from October, 1950. And they're sitting and they're chatting back and forth. I said, well, gentlemen, while, while you're talking, let me put you on speaker. I'll go over to the files and let me just quickly review October, 1950 and see if I have anything. As I'm going through the files, I stumble across a NICAP report form and I see the name of the witness, which to anybody else, this would not even be a blip on the radar. The witness's name was Hulon, H-U-L-O-N, Pace, P-A-C-E, kind of like Weir Clem, one of those weird names that definitely stands out. And so I looked at that and I immediately pulled the report out. The reason it caught my attention, I had filed for declassified, unredacted OSI 
Project Blue Book files relating to the Farmington, New Mexico incident from March 1950. In the unredacted OSI reports, one of the witness names that had been blacked out previously was Hulan Pace. So I'm looking at this, and now again, mind you, Kevin, it's from uh, October 1950 is where it's filed. I pull out the report form. It states, uh, references the Perry Smoke Chevrolet garage that was in Farmington. That was one of the epicenters where a lot of UFO witnesses were congregating and seeing these objects. Uh, it also references a number of other witnesses, one of whom I interviewed who's in his 90s in Farmington. Uh, the last surviving witness mentioned in the local newspaper from that time period. And as I continued to look at it, I quickly realized this was an account of Farmington, the Farmington incident, but it was filed October 1950. When I flipped to the back page, it was uh, an interview conducted by an APRO investigator and an ICAP investigator. They did a joint interview with this individual. And he noted that the, the date of the sighting was October 1950. Now, as you know, Kevin, interviewing these historic witnesses, they may not remember the date, they may not remember the month, but they'll remember something personal. Like, I remember I was wearing my favorite black jacket that I had saved weeks to buy. So it had to be pretty cold. It couldn't have been the summer months. And so I think in this particular case, the witness who, by the way, the interview was conducted, I believe in 1967, 17 years after the event, uh, stated that it was October 50, but clearly it was a report from Farmington. What was unique about this, it had been misfiled all these decades. The report form provided two things that we hadn't had before. It provided a sketch of the objects. We had descriptions, uh, written descriptions, but no sketches. He described a sketch showing multiple angle views of what would be a quote unquote flying disc. He also showed the trajectory that they came in from, the direction they came in from, how they flew over the local airport, which is up on a mesa, and then how the direction in which they departed. In addition to that, he also provided two additional witness names that were never part of the historical record, witness names that we never had before tied to this case from 1950. So it just goes to show that you never know what might be misfiled or buried or lost in the data. And that de quite literally decades later, you can start putting these pieces together. Well, one of the things I found interesting about the Project Blue Book files was that they uh, tried to redact the names of everybody that was involved because there was some kind of idea that the, the witnesses expected secrecy and they're gonna redact the names. I found very few files in the Project Blue Book files that I could not put the names back in that they would skip a name or there would be something else that uh, you could figure out this is where it is and this is who the guy is. Very few files like that. I've always been yeah. able to find the names. Sometimes they would redact it from the official documentation and they would have newspaper clippings and then they wouldn't redact it from there. You said, well, what's the point? Other than this obscure this whole thing. I think when they were doing that, it wasn't really to obscure the data. It was right. a feeling that they owed it to the witnesses who talk to them about this back in whatever time frame to take their names out so they wouldn't be hounded by UFO investigators. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And to your point, the date, the location, directions of flight, et cetera, most of that information, as you know, were still contained in the files. Yeah. And uh, it gives you a good clue of what they were doing. And it gives you an idea of what the Air Force attitude was at the time they were conducting the investigations. Right. In some of the later files, 1969, I think it was, mm -hmm. 
and I talked about this in the Best of Project Blue Book, was there's a report from an Air Force major who was doing investigation in Florida, and he was just outraged that his time had to be uh, wasted interviewing UFO witnesses. And it comes through in the report that, I mean, he's just annoyed at these people. And some of them are, are military personnel, but he just doesn't want to hear it. And it's, well, it was a kite or it was this, it was the other thing. But you just see his attitude of being forced to do this investigation. You wonder how prevalent that was through the entire UFO investigation that the guys set out to do the UFO. Mostly the investigators were lower ranking officers or NCOs, not, not a field grade officer. But you can see that by going through the files. So I think that's an important part of the files as well, which kind of gets me to the question of, do you get an impression of visitation by going through these files or uh, does that move the needle in any direction for you? Uh, you cut out there for a second, Kevin. I missed the first part of the question. Sorry. Well, the um, I was wondering what your impression was going through the files. If you move toward the extraterrestrial or moved away from it, does it move the needle in a direction uh, for you? Not really. But the one thing I do like to emphasize, and this this is no surprise to you, going through these files, despite the fact there's 15 file cabinets filled with decades worth of UFO files in line with the Air Force explanations. Yes, there are meteors that were reported as UFOs, numerous meteors and fireballs that it looked like a fireball. It flew like a fireball. There was nothing anomalous about it. So it was a fireball. Uh, we're not going to read UFO in, into each and every one of these reports. There was a plethora of uh, fireballs, meteor reports, uh, weather balloons, atmospheric balloons that were reported as UFOs. In fact, one of the most uh, widely publicized triangular UFO reports I came across was from September 1968, the year and month I was born. And it described over Madrid, Spain, tens of thousands of witnesses seeing a large triangular UFO over Madrid. And there was a famous photograph that was taken and it hit the news wires worldwide. And it really uh, generated a lot of interest at the time. Uh, but as the days and weeks ensued, uh, later NICAP uh, reached out to uh, the meteorological office in Madrid, Spain, and they were able to defend definitively conclude that the triangle was in fact a French meteorological balloon, which if you look directly up at it, it's basically an inverted pyramid. And if you're looking directly up at it, it's gonna take on a triangular appearance. But this was one that had garnered a lot of worldwide media attention, but it had a prosaic explanation. It was an IFO. It was identifiable. And so even though there's a lot of case files there, much like the Air Force investigation, a large percentage can be easily attributed to prosaic explanations. I found a um, video on YouTube a number of years ago called Meteor Compilation. I think it's three minutes and 19 seconds. And it shows people photographed, videoed, meteors coming apart. And I, I was struck by the idea that as the meteor breaks up, you get a string of lights behind it. And it looks for all the world like a cigar-shaped craft with a with glowing windows. Absolutely. And if you've just caught a glimpse of it, that may be the impression you get. Well, I saw this big cigar-shaped craft with a lighted cockpit and these, these windows behind it. And I think that that also is a problem that, that uh, if you've got a sighting that lasts less than a minute, uh, you know, well, I saw it for two seconds. Well, your mind is filling in a lot of the details that you really didn't observe. Absolutely. And, and confusing the issue. And I think we as investigators have become more sophisticated over time by looking for that sort of thing. 
And, and Kevin, uh, along that same note, uh, in writing my book and also on the, the subsequent research I've done over the course of the last year, looking at these historic triangle reports, if I have a report of people describing three points of light in a triangular formation, I don't use that. I throw it out because it quite literally could be that. It could be three independent lights or three independent aircraft flying in a triangular formation. The ones that I really try to drill down on are the, the accounts where the witness says it was overhead. And as it flew overhead, you could see it occluding the stars. Or in a case from Indianapolis from 1969, the witness saw this immense triangular object with a bright light at each point. And he stated that the street lights were reflecting on the underbelly of a solid object that was between these three lights. So, you know, even even looking at these triangles, there's a lot of cases that I would simply throw out just because I don't think that they were valid reports or that they couldn't be fit into that category of triangular UFOs. Well, I think we've just run out of time here. <laughs> I certainly appreciate you taking the hour to chat with us about the. Uh, um, not only uh, the work being done to collect the files and make them available to researchers, but the other work that you've done in, in researching UFO sightings. Uh, do you have a blog or a, uh, a website that you uh, use? Absolutely. My website is www.davidmarlerufo.com. And uh, there's links there, email, Facebook links, et cetera. And that's, that's the best thing. Uh, I, I just have my website. I, I don't blog and I don't tweet. <laughs> I don't tweet either. Well, thank you so much, David. I appreciate your time here. Thank you, Kevin. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, as we've mentioned, there's many, many books I've got coming out. Uh, my book on Project Moondust has just been republished. Actually, I shouldn't say republished. It's an uh, update of it, moving from the idea that there was a Project Moondust, but Moondust was probably a code word for UFO reports being uh, reported through various media. So if you get a chance, uh, take a look at Project Moondust, realizing that the new version has got an awful lot of new information. I threw out uh, one chapter. I added a different chapter. I changed things around to give you a better idea of what that uh, topic is like. And also take a look at Roswell, uh, Understanding Roswell, which is a, another take on, on Roswell. And of course, Leveland, which I think is one of the most important sightings that we've uh, investigated in the last 75 years and that sort of thing. I will be back in about 167 hours. We'll be talking about the current state of ufology and where it's going and where it's been. The blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And thank you so much for listening.